This episode is brought to you by Lamp Rainierson. Lamp Rainierson provides landscape architecture, planning, and civil engineering services. From community-wide master plans to land development, Lamp Rainierson incorporates sustainable design principles and equity into all of their projects. You're listening to the Booked on Planning podcast, a project of the Nebraska chapter of the American Planning Association. In each episode, we dive into how cities function by talking with authors on housing, transportation, and everything in between. Join us as we get booked on planning. Welcome back, bookworms, to another episode of Booked on Planning. In this episode, Jennifer and I are going to dive into a collection of articles from 2022 on resilience pulled together by Island Press. While not a book, it is still a great read and is the first in a new series we are launching this year of shorter episodes with content that we hope that you find valuable. So getting into the episode, we read through about 200 pages of articles that were pulled from a variety of media sources, ranging from two-page articles to five to six pages. And it was all under this topic of resilience. The document is part of the Urban Resilience Project, which was launched in 2015 with support from the JPB Foundation and the Kresge Foundation. The project's goal is to advance a holistic, transformative approach to thinking and action on urban resilience in the area of climate change, an approach grounded in a commitment to sustainability and equity. The document has sections for climate adaptation and climate justice, sustainable cities for all, policy and funding, environmental health, and climate and health equity fellowship. I found the articles in the sustainable cities for all section particularly interesting. Felt like those articles gave some interesting action steps for actually reaching sustainability goals in every facet of urban planning. Uh, two of the articles in particular for me, uh, we need to stop traffic deaths, but is policing really the answer? Questioning whether we should include policing in a city's Vision 20 plan and our streets need to be welcoming to deaf and disabled really highlighted perspectives that I hadn't considered before. What was your favorite section, Stephanie? So I work a lot in climate change, serving as a member of Lincoln's climate action team. So a lot of this really reinforced that work, which was nice. Uh, what surprised me most, though, was the financing section. I like the article on the Justice 40 Accelerator Program that helps communities or groups without the capacity to search through all the jargon and technical details of all the recent federal funding bills. And if anyone has worked in federal funding, they understand what a nightmare it can be to deal with federal funding. And I learned just recently that it can take a year or so just to get the paper agreement with Federal Highway after you've already been told that you were awarded project funding. So Programs like that, I think, are going to be hugely beneficial to some of these smaller communities wanting to access that funding. Yeah, I worked on some Tiger grants at one point, and when I realized that it was going to be seven years before we would even see the money to work on the project, it blew my mind. Yeah, it's just crazy when, especially these recent grants, you only have three or four years to get projects done, so... I also thought there were some interesting articles like an SEC law that is supposed to hold companies accountable and avoid greenwashing, as well as a concept to regulate banks to transition away from financing fossil fuels. 
My favorite, though, as a preservationist was the idea that green banks could use the IRA funds to expand adaptive reuse projects in walkable, bikeable areas, which also supports equity work by investing in areas that haven't seen uh, recent reinvestment. So, I mean, that was more. That was a couple favorites. So what, what were your favorites? My favorite article actually addressed the water crisis that's brewing along the Colorado River. Water policy and actually the interstate compacts in particular are near and dear to me. I grew up with the South Platte River in my backyard, so I have been very aware of water scarcity problems for a long time. The river would actually just dry up around midsummer. The article highlights Las Vegas's approach to water management through water recycling and turf conversion. They have been growing in population, but actually reducing the amount of water that that the city uses overall. And I think that it's a really great model to show other water thirsty cities. Yeah. Uh, I also thought it was interesting. You started to see this theme of multi-solving developing through all these different articles. There were many that discussed the idea of pairing multiple funding sources to achieve certain goals or using funding that wasn't really directed towards climate change, but the benefits would help reduce our climate impacts. An example being stormwater infrastructure, which is really great because it can serve as a wonderful park amenity, but also reduces flooding for property owners and then also lessens the impacts of climate change. I have to shamefully admit that this was my first introduction to the theme of multi-solving, but as I was reading through the articles that discuss it, I felt like the theme really solidified the need for planning professionals to be involved in every stage of development. I know that the articles discussing multi-solving were specifically addressing more like funding, but it struck me that multi-solving is really big picture thinking. And I think that's what planners do best. I think that it's, that it just highlights how important it is that we just be a part of the process from the start. Yeah, no, that's a really good point that planners are there to point out all the different areas and find those solutions that address multiple different issues. So there was also an article in there about lessening polarization by building instead of just talking. It was an interesting approach that a group of planners had to depolarize situations that use model building to convey values instead of using language, which has a tendency to polarize. I was watching the second season of Fargo when I was reading this, and Ted Danson's character basically said this, that all the evil in the world was because we didn't have a common language. So he was sketching out his own language of symbols so he could all communicate better. That article actually really stood out to me as well. I appreciate the conversation that's recently been developing around things like language guides and language cleansing because, you know, we can't stop reading I was also reading an Atlantic article that supports these authors' viewpoint. We now have language guides based on that are like equity-based language, and you would think that that would be a good thing, but it can actually create confusion or even worse, and I'm sure you've experienced this in some of the public input that you've had as well, but it can create a sense of superiority for the people who know how to use the right terms which, again, furthers the polarization that that the article's authors were talking about. And this top-down approach to language has been pushing people further into their corners for decades. The modeling concept really seems like it has the potential to further communication instead. And there were several articles on coalition building, either to advance policy, obtain federal funding, or just to educate. All were grounded in citizens and residents being at the heart of the coalitions and working on the issues in their communities. The planning community has been advocating for this approach for many years. 
And it really ties back into the point about the top-down changes not being the most effective way to make progress on something as all-encompassing as resiliency. I thought it was encouraging in reading the author's bios, actually, that so many of these authors are not planners. It gave me hope that this perspective is, is making headway in larger communications. Yeah, that's a really good point. You don't necessarily need to be a planner to be in this conversation and, and f- furthering a lot of these goals. I mean, planners have been talking about the connection between health and place for a number of years, but it never really occurred to me that the health sector comprises such a large part of our GDP and collectively could have a really big impact on their own in committing to reducing their climate impacts that directly helps their patients. Hospitals are anchor institutions with political will and large capital. Uh, We actually have an episode coming up on how to use anchor institutions like hospitals to work for communities instead of like conflicting with the neighborhoods they surround. So, dear listeners, don't forget to subscribe and make sure that that episode ends up in your queue. And make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn for more information and articles on the topics that we cover. We hope you enjoyed this first article episode on Resilience Matters, Collective Action for Healthier Communities. If you want to check out the articles we talked about in this episode or read the full document, head to islandpress.org backslash resilience dash matters dash download to get your copy today. Remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and share the show. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on Booked on Planning.